often. Faith becomes more about who is in and who is out or about who belongs and who does not. But in order for spirituality to be good for anyone, it has to be good for everyone. In this podcast, we find incredible people using their faith and life as a catalyst for goodness in this world. Be inspired to discover your own goodness in order to make your life, your family, your community, and your world better. Hello and welcome to the Chasing Goodness Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Kinzera, one of my favorite humans on the show today, Brian McLaren. Brian has been such a pioneer mentor friend to so many of us in this space. And so it's just an honor to once again have him on the show. He's got a new book that is coming out at the end of May called Do I Stay Christian? It's spectacular. You all have to get the pre-order. There's a pre-order link in the show notes. So maybe pause right now, even before you hear the interview and just get that book ordered because you're going to want to read it. So with no further ado, enjoy this interview with Brian McLaren. Well, Brian McLaren, good to see your bright, shining face once again. I think I, I could totally be wrong. I'll have to go back and look. I think you might be the podcast guest who has been on this show more than any. I bring that up because when I started this podcast, to me, you were the, the mountaintop. Like if I could get Brian McLaren on this podcast, it'd be a dream. And now, now here we are, like you were just saying, it feels like, it feels like we're hanging out every other day. I know we're not, but, uh, it's, it's been great to have you on the show and I'm excited for this conversation. Me too. And I I have to say, when you said, it's nice to see your bright shining face, I thought you were going to say, it's nice to see your bright shining head. Yeah, um, I was a bald guy, but anyway, yeah, I was, I was going to say that. And then I caught myself right at the last moment because I didn't want to. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. All right. So oh, we've, great. yeah, we've got a we by we, I mean, you, you've got a new book coming out. I think it, correct me if I'm wrong. This is coming out at the end of May. Is it May 20, 24th? Is that correct? That's it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and it's called, do I stay Christian, a guide for the doubters, the disappointed and the disillusioned. And thank you for, for sending me a copy of the book, but I have to let you know, as I've been on airplanes and airports and coffee shops, reading this book, I don't think I've ever gotten more sideways glances for the title of a book I was reading than this. One. I think it made a lot of people think. So why don't you just start off by sharing a little bit about uh, why this was a book that you felt was important to write? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, starting in the 1990s, there there was a unprecedented shift away from Christian faith here in the United States. It's been going on, you know, for a hundred years and more in Europe. But there was this huge jump among young people reaching a point where they were brought up Christian, um, but they no longer wanted to identify as Christian. And that was huge in the 1990s, and it's continued since then. And it's a lot of young people feeling this, but surprising numbers of old people like me, and even surprising numbers of clergy. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. you you won't be surprised by this, but some people will. Um, I, I was talking to a bishop in a large denomination who told me he and a group of other bishops went out after some of their meetings, and they were talking about retirement. And one of them said, how many of you plan to attend church after retirement? I sure don't. So there's this sense that something's wrong and and that this isn't working. And it's a big deal. And it's been a big deal in my life. So that really is the genesis for Do I Stay Christian? 
Yeah. And, and just so listeners know, kind of the setup of the book is you, you almost make a case for why a person would not want to stay Christian. Then you, in a sense, make a case for maybe why a person would want to stay Christian. And then you have a, a beautiful, you know, probably my favorite part of the book was just the the last third of the book, which mm-hmm. is, okay, how do we, how do we then move forward? Which is, uh, which was, yeah. was wonderful. And I, you know, for me, I think the, the first part of the book of why I wouldn't want to stay Christian, Christian. Those are some of the things I think I've wrestled with for a long time. And so in, in some ways it was just good to rethink about a lot of that stuff. In some ways it almost thought like it reopened some wounds a little bit, which I think was good. I don't say that in a negative way. And then some of the things that you brought up in the second part about why to stay Christian were so unique and eye-opening and thought-provoking. And so I was so thankful for it. And you share that you're not interested in telling people whether they should or not. You're just posing some, some thoughts, I guess. Um, so share a little yeah. bit about if and how you can stay unbiased while writing a book like this. <laughs> you know, one of the things that happens when you write books is people send you emails and they tell you their life story and a lot of their pain and where I'm speaking somewhere and people wait in a long line and then pour out their heart. And so I end up, even though writing is a solitary profession, uh, getting out and talking about your books is not. And um, and there's a lot of pain out there, Matt. And there are some people, they cannot stay Christian. They cannot. Um, this religion is destroying them. You think about a guy like someone I know who was sexually abused by a, three different priests in his childhood, uh, the damage that has done to him. Uh, and, and on top of that, he went to his parents to try to tell them and they didn't believe him. And they just told him to be quiet. Uh, I mean, the pain of this, and it's not only that he had to endure that himself, but then he had to learn that higher ups in the, in the organization knew about these priests and didn't do anything about it. So, what happens to a, a kid like that who grows up and is now 35 or 40 years old? And, and you want to tell that person, oh, just, you know, uh, I mean, the damage is so great. And, and then add to that, women, I, I remember a woman came up to me once and uh, she was a seminarian and she was in a denomination that didn't ordain women. And she said, I feel so bad for you that you've taken so much heat and people have been so mean to you about things you've written. She said, thank you for your courage. And she has tears in her eyes. And I say, well, I really appreciate that. But the tears in your eyes tell me you've experienced some pain too. And then she just says, well, you speak up and you get punished. I speak up and nobody listens. And I thought the pain that she was feeling was greater than my pain. You know, if, if, I mean, probably not good to compare her pain, but I could just feel her pain so deeply. So there are so many people who, uh, here's the way I'd say it. If the Christian religion, if leaders in the Christian religion don't get serious about cleaning up the mess they've made, if they don't get serious fast, they don't deserve to have people to keep showing up. Uh, that doesn't mean people break off break up with Jesus or break up with God, but it does mean that the Christian religion has some work to do. So, you know, I don't want to convince people to stay Christian and, and let the status quo continue. And I suppose that's maybe another reason I wrote this book. If people are going to stay Christian, 
they better know what it is they're staying with so that they can respond uh, accordingly. Yeah, that's so true. There's so much work to be done. And I honestly, I think, you know, I can remember <laughs> when I was young and energetic, you know, there's, there's a, a young, new, new young generation coming up that probably has the energy to, to do a lot of that work. And a lot of us are, are ready for that work or already engaged in that work. So I do, you know, there is some hope there. And one of my favorite, I, I think probably the one of the most profound chapters that you wrote in the book for me personally is when you make the argument of, doesn't it seem I, and I'm, I'm going to get it wrong on some level, but you talk about how we're just starting to listen to the voices of people of color. We're just yes. starting to listen to the voices of women. How horrible yes. would it be if we all jumped ship right now when those voices are finally entering yes. the room? And I thought that was such a, a, a beautiful, beautiful thought. And it lines up with exactly that, that woman that you were talking about as well. Yes, that's, that's so true. Um, I mean, it really would be tragic. Like if we want to say Christianity as led by uh, what I call the white old boys network, white Christian old boys network, if that has failed, shouldn't we give the women and the people of color <laughs> a chance to do a better job? And, you know, it's so interesting how that's not just in Christianity. Like I look at our government and I just mm -hmm. think, yeah, it's still primarily a, a rich, white, older men's club. Even the younger men who are there are, are uh, you know, they're old boys in training. So this is a problem around the world, and it's, it's an opportunity uh, as well. And that's why, even though I know that many people will leave Christian faith, I really hope that many will stay and keep the work uh, keep doing the work that needs to be done, especially at this at this critical moment. And and that I feel the same way about Congress. I'm so disappointed in so many of our political leaders, especially living in Florida where I live. But you don't if you tell people, well, just give up on government. Well, guess what? Then the scoundrels will stay in in power and won't have anyone challenging them. So it's a struggle. Um, but that's I guess that's life. <laughs> I <laughs> just, that's life. Just deal with it. I just earlier today, actually, as we're having this conversation, I had a conversation. Her name is, uh, I'm going to forget it now. Alexia Salvatier, I believe her name is. Oh, and she's, I think you know, the world of her. Yes. Yes. And she was bringing up the point that, you know, it's so easy to look at Christianity and see maybe the decrease in attendance in our predominantly white churches in America and think that Christianity is going away or disappearing, but she made the point through some of her research or, or some of the things that she knew that, you know, we're still about one third of the population would identify as Christian, but we're seeing that. I think she's, she mentioned that the, the primary Christian, like the, the person, the people that are the most Christian are African women right now. And so they're, it's just more hidden than possibly we're used to in, at least in America, um, but not necessarily that it's dying. It's just changing and the demographic yes. is changing. And we're starting to see a lot of vibrancy in Latino churches and in African churches, even though we see, as you call, you know, like these, these old boys clubs are starting to, to maybe decrease in, in attendance, but that doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that there's not this beautiful energy rising up in other places. That's a, a little more hidden. So have you been, have you seen some of that similar, some of those similar things happening, uh, as far as just, uh, you know, churches that, that maybe are predominantly 
you know, minority churches or churches led by women and people of color, are you seeing vibrance there that brings you hope and encouragement? Oh gosh. Uh, well here in the United States, I mean, if you were to ask me who, who are some of our greatest pastors, I would mention people like Jackie Lewis and Otis Moss, the third and Yvette Flunder and many others, people of color who are just wonderful uh, spiritual leaders, Raphael Warnock, who's both a pastor and a senator right now. So yes, I, I think that's true. I also have to be honest because I've traveled a lot in mm-hmm. Latin America and Africa and Asia. One of the problems is that American evangelicalism has exported itself around the world. And, sure. and so these problems that we have, uh, you know, uh, we, yeah, we've done a good job of exporting them. So yeah. Are there, you know, speaking of that, I think that's when I try to engage in these conversations and nowhere to the level, I'm sure of what you have to deal with, but there's so much, I don't know any way to, else to describe it. There's a, a sense of anger that comes back toward me when I want to question these, these belief systems or these structural systems. Do you have any perspective on that? How do we, how do we engage in this without creating so much anger and frustration that, that seems to be coming. And how do we even have that energy to try to engage in conversations, knowing that that might come back at us that way? Yes. Well, you know, this is an interesting time to go back and read the gospels with a question like that in mind. And you realize Jesus, so this could be taken really the wrong way, but I, we have to take seriously that Jesus had this line, don't throw pearls before swine. Let's put it in a, in a more gentle way. And that's to say, why give people something they're not ready for? If they're not ready for something, don't give that to them, but give them the most helpful thing you can give them that they're ready for. And what Jesus decided, it seems to me, is that a lot of people weren't ready for the full message that he had for them. So he would tell them a parable. And the purpose of the parable was to get them ready. Uh, the great philosopher Søren Kierkegaard called that indirect communication, not just going directly to your point, but preparing people. And, and, uh, and, that's, and so much of Jesus' teaching was in the form of parables. And, and I think that's why that's one of the things we can do. Um, parables don't hit you over the head with the truth. They give you a little scent of the truth and leave it up to you whether you want to follow that scent. And um, so, for example, one of my practices, when I hear my fellow Christians say things that I think are harmful and false and wrong, I like to just say, wow, I see that differently. And I don't need to get into an argument with them. In fact, very often they'll say, well, what do you mean? I'll say, well, listen, I don't want to get in an argument with you about it. I just, I, it's important for me to let you know that um, the way, what you just said I would never say that in a million years. I feel so different about that. Well, tell me, uh, well, if you want to talk, especially if it's in public, I'll say to them, you know, contact me in private sometime. We can talk in private, but this isn't the time or place. Because if you have a public conversation, people have to defend, uh, you know, they have to perform their loyalty and their goodness by vanquishing you. Um, And that doesn't get anybody anywhere. So I, I don't know if that, but that's one way that I try to handle uh, those situations. Yeah. That, I think that's super helpful. And I also think about how Jesus was so good at asking questions as well, as well, as opposed to just saying things. And (laughs) I'll just speak for myself. When I started changing some of my belief and changing some of my theologies, et cetera, I was 
I don't know. I think I was pretty pompous about it. And I think I have like this inherent white guy desire to want to show off and want to tell everybody where it's at. And that, that I found is not helpful, Brian. So uh, don't, don't do it. Don't do what Matt did go with what Brian said. It's way better. Hey, one of my favorite things about your entire book that I didn't see coming is there was a quote from Taylor Swift in a Brian McLaren book, right? I don't remember what it was off the top of my mind. I know it was towards the end and it, it caused me to close the book and just giggle for a while before picking it up again. So well done. Well done. Thanks. Was that your, Thanks. was that think, your idea? Did that just come out in a moment of inspiration? I think, um, I think the, I said something like as the great, uh, sage, uh, Taylor <laughs> Swift has said, I, by the way, I mean, I, uh, she's an incredible songwriter and, and thoughtful person, and she's willing to challenge some of the conventions uh, of our world. So I have a lot of admiration for her in that way, but yeah, I just quoted her haters going to hate line really re- right. relating to what we're talking about so that we don't think our job is to, is to make everybody agree with us. Uh, people have a lot invested in staying the way they are. And people have a lot invested in hating the people they want to hate. And so we have to do what we can, but we also, we have to know what is possible at any given moment. So I think Taylor's, Taylor's wisdom, haters going to hate is, uh, is apropos. (laughs) That's good. I'll make sure I have that queued up next time we're, we're together, whether it's in a car at a conference and I'll I'll just make sure it's, (laughs) it's planned. Or maybe like, if I ever get to introduce you somewhere, I'm just going to make sure that's that song is there. Cause it would get you, get you in the right frame of mind. What are, what are some practical things? I think a lot of what is happening in our world, a lot of the conversation that's going on is a realization of where we're at. I think that's pretty easy to understand. And a lot of people are starting to become very honest with that. But then maybe the the grander question that a lot of people are asking is, well, what can I do? What what yeah. if if I do want to stay Christian, yet I do see all of the challenges in our world and all of the challenges that Christianity has has been a part of? You know, what what would your response be to? Which I'm sure you get this question a lot of, like, what do what do I do? What do I do yeah. as a Christian who wants to stay Christian in light of what I know to be true? I really wish I could offer people, you know, five easy steps to to solve this problem. But this is a big problem. It began before we were born, and it will continue after we're gone. And so I think I I'd start by saying, um, what we do uh, is not the same as saying how do we fix this problem quickly. Um, and and the first thing I think we do is we shift the question from. Uh, you know, do I stay Christian to what kind of human being do I want to be? And I actually think Jesus would be happier with us facing that question. I just think about how he said, for example, you know, why call me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? In other words, I I don't care about the words you use. I don't care about what you say about me. I'm really interested in how you live. He he talked about it's by your fruits that people will know who you are, um, not by your doctrinal statements. Or he he called people to follow him, which is not the same as sing songs about him. You know, so um, so I, I, this question of what kind of person do I want to be, I would move that question to the front burner. And here's where holding that 
Christian identity can actually be a problem. If you say, I belong to this club, it's called Christianity, and they have these minimum requirements. And so now I'm a member in good standing because I meet the minimum requirements. I can relax and have no responsibility. I'm an insider. You can see how holding Christian identity in that way could make you a lot worse person. <laughs> um, but if if what animates you is not the minimum requirements to stay in, in the club and get the approval of certain other people, but the question is, what kind of person do I want to be? Uh, what kind of human being do I want to be? And that question to me is so liberating. And what it does, in a sense, is it gives us the permission to say, I'm taking that responsibility for defining what kind of person I need to be. I'm taking back that responsibility instead of outsourcing it to somebody else who thinks it's God's given them the job to tell me what to think and to tell me how to behave and to tell me who to vote for. No, I've got to go back and rethink this. And, and to me, then, that makes my Christian identity all the more meaningful because I'm asking that question with my primary conversation partner to be Jesus, you know, and, and to take seriously his life and teaching as I find it in the gospels and with openness to the spirit and openness to other people who are walking in that path. Uh, yeah. What kind of person do I want to be? I put that question on the front burner. Now you kind of alluded to it, unless that was hypothetical, but is it safe to say that you would say that your answer to do I stay Christian is yes. One of the things uh, I do, I think it's in the introduction, is I, I think I list 13 different ways to define what it means to be a Christian. And different people, they might have six out of the 13, or three out of the 13, mm-hmm. or one out of the 13. It is a fact that my life has been shaped by Jesus Christ and by my love for, for Jesus and my reverence for Jesus and my desire to follow Jesus. That is just a fact. I can't escape from it. But I realize that that's not enough for a lot of people. They want me to say this or believe that or vote for this or whatever. And here's a a wonderful liberating thing that happened to me, (laughs) I'm mad in the process of reading this book, is if other people want to say that I'm not a Christian, I don't care. That's fine. (laughs) they They can think that. If that's what they want to say, God bless them, you know. Yeah. I appreciate that because I think there's, I don't know, a lot of us feel this sense that we have to defend something. And at the end of the day, our relationship with God is, is meant to be a very personal thing. It should express itself in the world for certain, but everybody gets the opportunity to believe how they believe or what they believe. But it's fascinating to me that everybody wants to project that. A lot of people want to project that on others, but we don't have to hold that. We don't have to take that on. Late last night, I was turned on the news to catch up with what's happening in uh, in Ukraine and Russia. And there was a story about a Russian family. And it was a, a young Russian woman who her parents and her husband's, and, and she lived in Ukraine, and she had to escape Ukraine. Her parents live in Russia, and she told them what was happening, and they didn't believe their own daughter. Mm. And um, her her in-laws didn't believe their own daughter-in-law or son. And so you just realize if you were that woman, you would be grieved about what's happened to your Russian people, your Russian family, your Russian nation, your Russian government. You would be absolutely grieved. 
And you'd have to make a decision. Do I want to give up my Russian citizenship and become something else, right? And I think that's how a lot of us feel with our Christian identity. Mm. The Christian religion is doing things that are grieving us. And when we tell them, you're doing things that are hurting people, that are hurting the earth, they say, no, we're not. No, we're not. That's not true. We don't accept that. So I understand that conflict of identity. But I suppose in this case, I'm saying if I were born Russian, I would try to use my Russian identity and citizenship to be an agent for change. I, I'm not going to judge people who'd want to leave it, but how can I use what I have as an agent for, for change, not only for my benefit, and certainly not only for my religion's benefit, but for the benefit of everybody else too. Yeah. And I think on some level, it's our responsibility to define what we mean with a word like Christian, because it's, right. yeah. it's so all over the place and everybody's got a different perception of it. And so kind of understanding the person standing in front of you, knowing where they're at uh, to some degree, and then being able to share what you want to share about your own belief system in a way that makes sense to them. Because I yes. certainly wouldn't want to just overtly say, you know, to somebody who's maybe I don't know that typical evangelical white American Christian who thinks we should all vote Republican. I wouldn't want to just blanket statement, tell that that person I'm a Christian without some context, because all of a sudden I'm going to get lumped into this space. I don't want to be lumped into. This is the complexities of the term, you know, Mm -hmm. it's the complexities of the term. And this is also where I think it challenges us to go deeper in our Christian identity. Um, I, I had this experience on the outside once, um, I have a, have a friend who ran a, a organization, uh, you know, secular organization, and he calls me one and he's not, uh, you know, he's, uh, I don't think, you know, would necessarily define himself as a Christian. And he calls me and he says, I got this employee who's uh, a born again Christian, he said, and he is just a jerk. He drives everybody crazy. I'm on the verge of firing him. He talks, he doesn't listen. And he said, the guy's got, you know, a couple of kids. I feel terrible about firing him. Is there any way you could talk to him to try to help him? So here he's trying to help this employee, right? So we were going to be together at this event. So I meet his employee and his employee immediately, praise the Lord. So glad to be with a fellow man of God. And he pulls me aside. And then he tells me how he's trying to witness to his boss and how it's, you know, his boss is lost. And, and, and what I realized is he was creating this little club that he and I were insiders in the Christian club. And my friend who's trying to save his job and help his family and kids is the outsider. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, life is complicated. And so this is why, yeah, as you say, it it makes a whole lot of sense if somebody says, are you a Christian to say, well, probably we ought to talk about what you mean by that term or something like that, (laughs) or maybe say, I I really love Jesus. Um, You know, some days I... uh, the Christian religion drives me nuts or, or something like that. Interesting thing. And you're a pastor. I'm not. So fill in the gaps here. My understanding of the original word Christian was it was never something that earlier followers of Christ were using necessarily on yeah. for themselves. It was something that was given to them, even in a, a bit of a derogatory way. Am I yes. even in the ballpark on that, Brian? In fact, there's uh, some really interesting research about this in and that's just come out recently. Um, and I think there maybe if we took that word Christian and we were to say, what would it have meant 
in the 80s, 60s, or 70s. um, The only place it occurs in the New Testament is in the book of Acts, Mm -hmm. um, when, for example, this uh, sort of Roman bureaucrat says to Paul, are you trying to persuade me to become a Christian? So it's used, it's a term that has meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And it's, as you said, has a derogatory feel to it. But um, the word Christ meant messianic. And so are you a messianic? Are, Are you a messianic person? which has a really interesting meaning if you think uh, that a messiah is supposed to bring liberation to the world then are are you joining in the liberation movement that would have a kind of interesting Mm -hmm. meaning um and then other people uh, and another line of research suggests that in the roman world there were all of these political parties so in Israel, you were a Pharisee, or you were a Sadducee, or you were a zealot. And it could be that Christian was came to be seen as one of these political parties. And at first, it was huh. a Jewish party. Um, are you part of the Christ party, would be like what it's saying. Um, and of course, then you have to ask, what did that party stand for? And what did that party mean? And this is one of our problems today, because the word can mean opposite things. It can mean people who love refugees and welcome them into their homes and provide clothing and food, as we see happening in so much of Europe right now. It can mean people who hate refugees and uh, turn them into objects of scorn, as is happening in American politics so often. It can mean people who look at People who are outcasts, maybe in Jesus' day, it was sex workers or lepers. Today's world, it might be trans people or uh, trans children or uh, the addicted. And, um, and it meant people who saw them as their brother and sister and cared for them and, and, and refused to stigmatize them. Or it can be people who take the lead in stigmatizing them. The word can mean opposite things. And if we're going to stay Christian, I think we better realize that and decide (laughs) what it's going to mean for us. Yeah. And the the reason I bring that up is because we we get in this conversation of, do I call myself a Christian? But, you know, the, the, the introduction of the, the term, you know, when it first came, it it wasn't people calling themselves Christians. It was others seeing how people were living and putting that name on them. And so that goes back to your comment about what kind of human do I want to be? I just want people hopefully to see my life and look at that. And uh, they don't have to call it anything, but I'm hopeful that they, from the outside will look at it and see it as good, see it as beautiful and loving and other words that I would like to just you know, I would love for people to think of me as loving, generous, all of those types of things, you know, whether they call me a Christian or not is is somewhat irrelevant because of what that means today. But I almost, in my mind, I almost think of it like that. Like, you know, I I do want those other terms to be associated with me, which in my mind directly relates to my connection with the divine, my connection with Jesus and my desire to follow him. That's beautifully said. And, And here's the thing that becomes super meaningful about that. If somebody is saying, yeah, I met this guy, Matt, he's really got kind of a peace about him and he's honest and he doesn't push other people around. And I, and some deep part of them says, I'd like to be more like that. Hmm. Well, I think that's how this thing is supposed to work yeah. um, because I think that's how it originally worked with Jesus. He never said, Hey guys, I'm starting a new religion. Going to name it after me. Why don't you become part of it? It was, <laughs> it was more like, 
I'm living in a certain way. And if you want to follow this way, I'd love to have you come along. Yeah. Because there's another term like followers of the way is also another term associated with early Christians as it would. Now I'm going to delicately ask this question again, Brian, I asked it one other time because I ask it to most people that are on this podcast. And I don't know, maybe you were in a bad mood, maybe who knows, but I asked you where you see hope in the world. And I think you told me you don't see hope in the world. So let me ask you now, now here we are probably a couple of years past that, that last time I asked you the question, as you write this book, as you engage in more conversations now, here we are today, 2022, when it seems like the world has gotten worse. But do you see any hope? Do you see anything that gives you encouragement? If so, what? If not, why? Yeah, I have no idea why I was so difficult the last time you asked me this question. (laughs) Um, But except to maybe say this, um, I I wonder, years ago, I I heard someone critique hope in this way, that if I give you hope, it's your permission to be complacent. That's exactly so I, the context that you gave it in. Yeah, to be fair. I, yeah. I, I, I bet that's what I was, uh, I, I was riffing off of. But, but on the other hand, if people see only despair and defeat, then they become complacent in the opposite way. So let me answer mm-hmm. the question in the opposite way this time. Okay. A lot of things are getting worse and a lot of people care. And so where I see hope is in the people who care. Um, you know, the, the, the earth is suffering. The earth has been suffering for a long time. I think people care more right now that the earth is suffering than they have in a long time. Um, I think our democracy is under threat. Um, and I, I think there are probably more people working to overthrow democracy right now than there have been in a very, very long time, if ever. There are more people working to defend democracy than there have been in a very, very long time. Um, there are people who are vicious to LGBTQ persons. Uh, and some people are becoming more overtly vicious than they've been in a long time. But guess what? Other people are, are rising to the occasion and saying, hey, we're, you, you hurt my gay brother, my gay sister, my gay child. You're hurting me. I, I'm, I'm in this together. So that's where I see hope. I see hope in all the people who care and are, are speaking up about it and finding ways to do something about it. As we bring this home today, of course, of course, it's important to ask yourself the question, do you stay Christian? I think that's vital, but it's not just a black and white answer. And maybe as Brian mentioned, the more important question is simply, what kind of human being do I want to be? Because that will really define how we live our lives going forward. Special thanks again to Brian McLaren for being on the show. The book is Do I Stay Christian? It comes out May 24th. There's a pre-order link in the show notes. Please hop on that right away and get your copy ordered. You will not regret it. If you want to support this show, of course, you can subscribe to it. Give it a five-star rating and write a review. And as always, keep chasing goodness together.